You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Okay. Well, uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to uh, our Carnegie Endowment to discuss uh, demystifying the Chinese economy, a book by uh, Justin Lin, to my right, uh, who is uh, chief economist of uh, uh, the World Bank and uh, uh, is also known for being my former boss uh, <laughs> and, and, and friend. Um, Justin uh, will present, discuss his book briefly for about uh, 10 minutes, and this will be followed by uh, our discussants, uh, Nick Lardy of the Peterson Institute uh, to my right, and uh, uh, Vikram Nehru, uh, who recently joined uh, the Carnegie Endowment uh, from the World Bank and is the uh, director for our uh, Southeast Asia program. Uh, just a word about our uh, presenters, because you have the bios, uh, you know who they are. Uh, so just very briefly, I wanted to say that uh, uh, Justin Lin is uh, uh, one of the world's leading experts on development. Uh, if you uh, read his book, uh, you will find there an enormous amount of information about the Chinese economy and knowledge that can only be uh, developed through uh, ongoing practice of the art of development policy. And that is what you will feel in the book, and that is what you learn uh, from Justin uh, when you listen to him and when you work uh, closely with him. Uh, he has, of course, published very, very widely. I see here that he's written 23 books. I have to look every time because the number of books grows and grows. Uh, and uh, when I left the World Bank three years ago, it was less than 23, as I recall. Now 18. it's 18, sorry. So now it's 23. And uh, uh, Nick Lardy, of course, is uh, known to you as uh, one of uh, uh, the leading uh, experts on China uh, in the world. Long history in this area before the Peterson uh, Institute. He was at... Uh, uh, Brookings and uh, uh, at the University of Washington at uh, Yale University School of Management. He's also written uh, widely, of course, on, uh, on China. And my friend Vikram to the left was uh, a chief economist of uh, the East Asia region of the World Bank and uh, also was uh, uh, director of economic policy, among other very senior positions uh, that he held uh, at the World Bank. Vikram uh, was the lead author of the recently published uh, report uh, on China uh, done jointly uh, by uh, the World Bank and uh, 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 institutes appointed by the, Chinese, uh, by the Chinese government, which proposed a far-ranging uh, set of uh, reforms to China. So we have uh, quite, a, quite a panel here uh, today. And let me ask uh, Justin to begin and to say again, 10 minutes, no more than okay. 10 minutes, because we want to keep 
we want to have a conversation about it. And then, and then five minutes each to the discussions, then we'll open it up. Please, Justin. Okay, thank you very much for this opportunity to share with you some of my understanding about the Chinese economy. We know that China started the reform at the end of 1978, beginning of 1979. And in the past 33 years, and especially in the first 25 years, most people thought Chinese economy was going to collapse anytime soon. But in spite of all those expectations, China continued to grow dynamically. On the average, 9.9% per year for the past 32 years. And it's a record in human history. And so for me, today I'd like to you know, share a few points. How come it was possible for China to grow at this rate for such a long time after the reform in 1979? Then I also want to share with you briefly how come it was impossible for China to achieve similar rate of growth before the reform in 79. And if reform was the main reason for China to have such a performance, how come other countries in the transition in the reform, they could not have a similar rate of growth? And equally important is that how much longer China can maintain such a high growth rate? Regarding how come it was possible for China to have such a high rate of growth, my answer actually is very simple. We know that for any country to have a sustained growth, the most important driving force is a continuation of technological innovation. That's for every country. But for a developing country, there's something called the advantage of backwardness. High-income country on the global technological frontier, for technological innovation, they need to invent the technologies. For a developing country, innovation can be absorption imitation. And if a developing country know how to tap into that potential, they can maintain 7, 8, 9% growth rate. And in effect, there were certain economies in the world after the Second World War tap into that potential, achieve 7% and more growth rate continuously for 25 or more years. And China became one of those 13 after the reform started in 1979. So the answer is simple. Advantage of backwardness. But advantage of backwardness has been there for a century. How come the China did not benefit from the growth rate before the reform in 79? Again, it was because of the government policy before 79 was trying to be too ambitious. Like in the 1950s, China wanted to overtake the United Kingdom in 10 years. China wanted to catch up the U.S. in 15 years. So that means that 
you know, after the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949, and immediately when China started the five-year plan in 1953, China wanted to develop the most modern industry at that time. And if China wanted to develop most modern industry at that time, certainly China cannot, could not benefit from the advantage of backwardness. Not only so, those kind of advantage industries were so kept intensive. It was against China's competitive advantages. Firms in those kind of sectors were not viable in an open competitive market. And as to establish them, China need to protect them, give them all kind of subsidies for the investment and for the continuous operation. And by that, not only China did not benefit from the advantage of backwardness, but also were hurt by all those kind of distortion, very inefficient in resource allocation, the replacing of the incentive. Only after 1979, China started to change its strategies, started to develop the light manufacturing, very intensive sectors, and to improve the incentive in agriculture and in the industrial sectors. And those kind of change in the strategies allow China to start to benefit from the advantage of backwardness. But if this is a simple story for the success of China, we know that all the country in the transition in the 1980s, 1990s, no matter it's in a socialist country or in Latin America or in Africa, we know that in the post-World War II, almost every country followed similar strategies, wanted to build up the commanding height, wanted to you know, be modern country immediately, right? So they all had those kind of heavy industry-oriented strategy, had a similar distortions, like China started the transition in 1979. And how come other countries did not benefit from the transition, like China? Again, it was transition strategies. Because most other countries follow the Washington consensus. They observe the distortion. And certainly, for economists, it's very easy to build a model to show. As long as you have those kind of distortion, you have those kind of intervention, your economic is going to be very inefficient. And so the otherwise was to privatize your state-owned sectors, to remove all your distortions, and uh, to liberalize your economies. But this kind of approach neglected those kind of distortions were introduced as a second best arrangement to protect a non-viable firm in the priority sectors. If the government remove all those distortions immediately, all of them are going to go bankrupt. And the goal of them go bankrupt, you are going to have 30%, 40% unemployment in the cities. And if the government really implements that, you are going to have social political instabilities. Without social political instability, certainly you can have growth. And for free of that, in effect, most countries follow the Washington consensus. After officially they remove those kind of distortion, they reintroduce all kind of disguised subsidies and protection to the old firm in the name of protection job and so on. And those kind of disguised distortion and subsidies were even less efficient than the all the distortion and subsidies. Another reason why other transition economy, they could not perform well. Then how come China could do well? Well, China is a very pragmatic country. 
So China adopted certain kind of dual track approach. On the one hand, continue to provide transitory protection and subsidies to the oil sectors, but liberalize the entry to the labor-intensive new sectors. And this kind of strategy, on the one hand, preserve the stability, but on the other hand, promote the dynamic economic growth. And with dynamic economic growth, it also create a condition for the Chinese government to reform the oil sectors. So that's the reason why China could perform so well and in contrast to the poor performance in other transitional reforming economy. The last question. How long China can maintain this kind of high growth rate? Well, my answer is also very simple. It depends on how large is the advantage of backwardness. And how can we measure the advantage of backwardness? Well, to measure your technological level with the highest income countries. And the U.S. can be the representative of the high, highest income country. And uh, in 2008, that was the data I have for comparison. In 2008, the per capita income in China was 21% of U.S. per capita income measured by purchasing power parity. And I think that is the good, the best measurement for the labor of development <coughs> and for the technological certification for the whole economy. It was similar to Japan in 1951, <clears throat> Taiwan in 1975, Korea in 1977. Their economy was all 25% of the U.S. economy in terms of per capita income in those three years. For Japan, from 1951 to 1971, the average annual growth rate was 9.2%. For Taiwan, the average annual growth rate from 75 to 95 was 8.3%. For Korea, from 77 to 97, the average annual growth rate was 7.6%. We know that East Asian economies was a group of the economies able to tap into that gross potential advantage of backwardness. The East Asian economy was those economy I described, certain economy after the Second World War. And since the reform in 79, the mainland part of China followed similar strategies as Japan, Korea, Taiwan. So with this gross potential allow Japan, Korea, and Taiwan to maintain 20 years of about 8% growth rate. I'm quite confident. The potential is still there for China to maintain another 20 years of around 8% growth rate. So let me stop here. Fantastic. Uh, Justin, thank you also for uh, staying within the time. Uh, so if I understand, <laughs> uh, again, the um, before I, take, I turn to Nick for uh, some comment, your, your point is that uh, uh, China's growth is uh, fundamentally, was the success of China, is fundamentally due to the fact that it adopted a dual-track approach. After the reforms. After the reforms, once it embarked on the reforms, where it sort of maintained 
the protection of some of the basic industries, the commanding heights, and change that relatively uh, gradually so as not to have chaos. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, opened up the market for a lot of the new industries, which are and the labor-intensive industries, whether they were new or, or old, uh, in a way that reflected China's underlying comparative advantage. Right. And that that dual-track approach and the fact that it was taking advantage of uh, backwardness uh, is uh, what explains its growth. And also, as you look to the future, you said China is today not too distant from where Taiwan, Korea, right. and, uh, and Japan were uh, many years ago, and therefore is capable of growth at a very high rate for 20 years to come. Um, Nick, do you, what is your reaction, both to the book or to the main points that, uh, that uh, uh, Justin made? Let, let me talk a little bit about the book. Um, given that he only had 10 minutes, he really couldn't cover, and I'd just like to give you a sense of the range of issues uh, that the book covers. It is very broad-gauged. I think it really is uh, a book in three parts. Uh, first is uh, a, a very comprehensive analysis of why China, China lost its early economic lead over the West. I mean, I think most of us are familiar with the idea that certainly through the early part of the Ming Dynasty, China was the richest, uh, most developed, most technologically advanced, the most urbanized country uh, on the globe, uh, and that once the Industrial Revolution got started in England and then spread to other countries, that uh, China fell behind. Its GDP didn't fall in absolute terms, but it uh, was rough, you know, with some fluctuations, but basically the long-term trend was relatively flat in terms of per capita uh, GDP, uh, so that China lost its uh, early lead, and there's a very uh, insightful analysis of, of factors that may be responsible for that. Lots of hypotheses have been generated over the years, and I think it's a very good survey and uh, brings some new ideas uh, to the debate as well. Uh, the second part of the book is really the planned economy period. Uh, Justin, again, didn't have time to comment on that very much in his remarks, but kind of looking at what happened after uh, the formation of the People's Republic in 1949, the planning uh, system that began uh, in the 19, in the early uh, 51, 52, 53, more 53 on, the first five-year plan. Uh, and he talks uh, about the shortcomings of that. And then the other part of the book is really about the reform era, as he indicated, uh, the period over the last 30 years. And as Yuri said, it, it does really reflect uh, Justin's very strong uh, development economics orientation. Uh, the basic idea is that uh, the planning period up until 78, for the most part, with some exceptions, uh, followed what he calls the CAD strategy, that is a comparative advantage defying strategy. Uh, the, the emphasis on heavy industrialization, as uh, Justin just mentioned, the desire to catch up rapidly that was uh, fairly pronounced in a number of countries um, over the, in the post-war period. This kind of a development strategy is characterized by uh, artificially depressed interest rates and overvalued currency, uh, low wages, uh, suppressed prices for raw materials and uh, intermediates so that uh, certain parts of the industrial sector will be very highly profitable, and the state then confiscates those profits and uses them and allocates them through the planning mechanism 
to generate uh, a very high level of investment given the level of per capita income. It's a resource mobilization strategy that's state-driven, and the resources are allocated uh, predominantly to, to heavy industry. And uh, obviously that strategy works in certain respects, certain superficial respects, but turns out not to be viable uh, in the long run for reasons that, uh, that the book explains very well. I think the argument of the book is that uh, since the late 70s, China's been uh, in a CAF strategy that is a comparative advantage following strategy that's more market-oriented, relies on market-determined prices, market-determined resource allocation for the most part, uh, and is more consistent with China's comparative advantage and allows China to achieve the very high rates of economic growth as he said, beginning uh, much more emphasis on light industry, much more open to the global economy, lots of labor-intensive exports, um, uh, exploiting China's comparative advantage in uh, abundant labor, uh, relatively low wages, and a period of growth that has been very rapid has been uh, accompanied by an increase over time in the capital-labor ratio, but that leads China to gradually uh, move up uh, the latter, but it is one in which the pace of that is market-determined rather than predominantly plan-determined. He does, the book is mostly uh, about the history. It, it has, uh, in the closing chapter, some very interesting discussion, however, of the challenges going forward. Uh, distortions in the financial structure get some attention. Uh, distortions in resource prices uh, and administrative distortions, the monopoly role of state-owned companies in, in a number of critical sectors and he suggests ways that, um, that these distortions might be uh, overcome. I guess if I, since I have to say something critical, I, I would say if the book, if the book uh, didn't have this huge historical sweep, it might have been able to, which I don't, I'm not recommending that that should have been done or maybe the book were longer, uh, it would be interesting to hear and maybe shed some light on this in, in terms of his own views right now, on why, given the fact that we've had very successful reform for 30 years, why haven't we been able to break down uh, the remaining price distortions? Um, he alluded briefly to the dual-track pricing system that uh, evolved, uh, allowed a mechanism for moving forward without bankrupting all the uh, existing enterprises at the beginning. But here we are, 38, uh, really closely to 35 years later, and some of these price distortions still exist. Most prices have been liberalized, but as he properly points out, uh, certain prices have not, particularly energy and a, a certain number of other prices that are still controlled uh, by the government. And also, I think the government has not been very successful in uh, dealing with the monopolies, and obviously there are some monopolies that are natural monopolies that might require one set of policy approaches, and there are other monopolies uh, in China, sectors that are monopolized, um, that is largely a result of government policy. And uh, again, the question is, why haven't, um, why haven't some of these issues been successfully addressed given the rapid economic growth and, the, uh, and so forth? Um, the, the only other thing I would say is, given the broad range of topics that are discussed, uh, we're, we're painting with a very broad brush. It's in many areas where you talk about financial reform, for example. Uh, it's a very broad brush, so there's not a lot of detail. You, uh, I think the book actually grew out originally out of a, out of a course that Justin taught for many years at, at Beijing University at the China Center for Economic Research. And 
I wondered if that's why it had 13 chapters. You must have 13, <laughs> 13 weeks of your semester. <laughs> chapters. <laughs> no, that, I enjoy the book very much and uh, am Thank glad you. to have an opportunity to participate in this discussion. Great. Thank you. Uh, so uh, before we come back to you, uh, Justin, become your reactions. Well, thank you, Uri. And first of all, let me uh, wish uh, Justin uh, fare thee well. Uh, Justin is leaving Washington in about a month. He's going back to Beijing. I know the World Bank will feel his absence. Uh, when I was doing the China 2030 report, I can tell you that Justin was a tremendous support. And in my many interactions with uh, President Zelik, uh, where Justin was present at every time, I could tell that President Zelik really valued Justin's uh, ideas and Justin's uh, thoughts. So I know that uh, uh, he will miss, uh, miss your absence too. Um, I was going to talk about the book, but uh, Nick has stolen my thunder on that. Uh, so let me just quickly tell you what I found the most valuable part of the book. I, I, the entire book is really interesting reading. But to my mind, the most valuable uh, part of this book was... Uh, was the description of the reform process. This was really an insider's view of that description. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was really captivating to learn how the household responsibility system began in Shaogang village, what the desperation of the villagers was at the time, how the local council saw the value of what they were trying to do, because they were actually flouting the law at the time. They were taking a big risk. And they, the, the local council saw this, recognized its value because of the increased production, decided to spread it and support it. And finally, thanks to the fact that in China there was a lot of, at that time, uh, competition between local governments to try and expand output, this spread like wildfire across China. A fascinating glimpse of what was going on uh, within the country. Um, so when I, when I read it, I thought to myself, you know, actually, the, there were two really big parts to China's success, uh, two core parts to China's success. And while none of those policy reform initiatives were drawn from Western economic thinking, actually there are two branches of theory which support it and support it very strongly. Now the first is, of course, uh, the Ricardian theory, where, uh, where Justin talks about the dual-track approach. The Ricardian view is that provided you get marginal cost equal to marginal revenue, you can achieve efficiency. It's the marginal price that's important. And even though a large part of the economy may still be controlled, may still be supported by controlled prices, provided marginal revenue equals marginal cost, you can get a substantial increase in production through improved incentives. So, Ricardian economics certainly would very strongly support uh, what happened in Chinese agriculture. The second uh, dimension, of course, is what happened in Chinese industry. Uh, and I would argue, as, uh, as Yukon Huang has done, a colleague of ours in Carnegie, that uh, the theory uh, uh, developed uh, by the economics of geography pro proposed by Paul Krugman uh, definitely supported what happened in China. I'm not suggesting that this is where the ideas were drawn from, certainly not. Uh, but it is remarkable uh, that after Deng Xiaoping's tour of the South, uh, there was uh, the idea of expanding uh, industrial production, increasing liberalization for these labor-intensive industries in the South, particularly along the coast, and it very quickly spread along the Chinese coast. 
not only was this, uh, 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 was this focused on the coast, but substantial resources were injected by the government into this area in the form of infrastructure and other sorts of, other sorts of resources. So ironically, resources were pumped into an area of China which was already relatively well off compared to the rest of China. And this was not a spreading of resources to equate, to, 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 to increase the marginal returns of capital. But the implication was that coastal China benefited very substantially from economies of scale, from agglomeration economies, and from urbanization economies, as a result of which there was a very rapid decline in the unit cost of production and a very substantial and quick improvement in China's competitiveness in international markets. So this was a, a very interesting application of the uh, sort of the Krugman idea on, on agglomeration economies and the economics of geography. Now, if I, like, like Nick, I feel I need to make sort of a few observations as to what I felt uh, uh, were, uh, where the book could have gone further. The first is actually, it's interesting, it's the title, right? Demystifying the Chinese Economy. And I thought to myself, would we have a book entitled Demystifying the Indian Economy <laughs> or Demystifying the American Economy? And the answer is probably not, right? The reason is there's such a dearth of information, actual data and inside information on what is happening in China. It is a very opaque decision-making system. When I worked in China 2030, as Uri said, I had colleagues from think tanks on the other side, and to them, I realized substantial parts of the Chinese economy were like black boxes. They were not able to get information from inside ministries as to what actually was happening. So it would be, it would be useful if China were to become more transparent, so it wouldn't have to be periodically demystified for the rest of us. And one of the interesting things is I did a I did a word search on, on, on Justin's document, and the word transparency or transparent didn't crop up once. I think this is an important uh, issue and something that could be emphasized. The second is that I felt that the book was very strong in the past, as Nick has pointed out, very good explanation of the past, uh, rather than the present or the future, and I guess that would have meant a substantial increase in the size of the book, which none of us would have necessarily wanted. But also, I suspect it was because this is a, uh, this is a compilation of, of, of Justin's lectures. But it was also a focus on the what, what happened, rather than on the why and a little bit of the how, especially when we talk about the future. When Justin is talking about the future, he does, argue, he does point out what needs to be done. And uh, I think he has sort of five big points, but those points are to improve the financial sector, to do this, to do what needs to be done. But the big question is how. As Nick seems to have suggested, there are many lingering distortions in the economy which have not been removed. And there is a reason why they've not been, re been removed. I would argue that there are substantial vested interests now in China that could be blocking reforms. And the big challenge in China, like in many other countries, is how do you go about bringing these deep reforms? And this really takes me to my last point. My last point is taken from this very recent book by uh, Asimoglu and Robinson on why nations fail. We were talking about it just before this discussion. And in that book, the question that Asimoglu and Robinson ask is, 
know, why do some countries make the right decisions? We know China made several decisions which turned out to be very successful. But why did it happen? How did it happen? What were the processes that took place inside the Communist Party, inside the decision-making structures that made it happen? And uh, uh, the, the, sort of the conclusion of the uh, Why Nations Fail book is really something like, you know, politics trumps. Ultimately, it's about politics. But the political aspects of the Chinese economy, and I would have loved for that to have been demystified, but the political dimensions were not discussed uh, in this book, and I miss that. Let me stop there. Okay, well, thank you very much. I was tempted to say, to, to think and to say when uh, Vikram was speaking that uh, uh, just because uh, uh, policies are more transparent in India and the United States, it doesn't mean they're any better at the end of the day. But uh, uh, certainly they're, they're, they may be easier to interpret. So, Justin, do you have any response to yeah, your I'd discussions? Yeah, I'd like to respond to you. Yeah. Uh, I think those comments are very good, and thank you for reading my book so carefully. <laughs> Yeah, and I hope you will also read my book very carefully. <laughs> the first one, how come I do not go to very details about certain areas? Because I need to give some scope for you to write books. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, Nick was right. You know, the book was based on my lecture notes. And I taught this course for 15 years. At the beginning, it was a semester system with 18 weeks. And I saw if you took out the exam weekend and so on, and uh, the first week of introduction, I, have, I had 15 lectures. But later on, because it was influenced by the American system, the <laughs> semester was, was shrinked to 15 weeks. So I could only have 13 lectures. <laughs> and with a certain lecture, because I like the student to understand the history. I like students to understand the origin and to have a framework. And even I do not give all the details, but with a framework, it's very easy to understand what would be desirable, what would be necessary for the futures, and also to have a good enough grasp how we come about to the current situation. That's one thing. And secondly, about demystifying if you know, your comments for 20 years ago about there was no data, that was right. But today it's not data issue. The data is available. Just the framework to understand the data. The data has been there. But because of this kind of transition to our economies, the data is very hard to understand. So very often when you present the data to the people outside China or even within China, they use existing theory as a framework to understand the data. They often say the data was wrong, the data was manipulated. But in effect, if you have a better understanding of the structure of the Chinese economy, then you understand actually those data was right, reflect the facts. In effect, I have a chapter on that, right? So I think that now it's not a data issue. For understanding China, it's a framework issue. It's a theoretical issue. You cannot use the theory simply transparent from what you learned in Chicago or at Yale and I wanted to use that to understand China. If you want to use that, you always say the data has some problem. But if you adopt my book, it's approach to understand 
then you'll find enough data for you to have a very good grasp about what's happening in China. That's the first point. The second point regarding in a political economy issue. I discussed a little bit in my book. I don't think the political captures is the whole story. Because for the political leaders, no matter in which country, always have some degree of freedom, some discretionary power. And that the success of federal countries is that whether the political leaders can utilize that degree of freedom to shape the direction and restructure the incentive. Today you can say, well, some industrialists or financial sectors, they are so powerful, they have the, they, they, so they capture everything. But 30 years ago, collective farming sectors and industrial sector, heavy industrial sectors, like at the time, in the covenant, the industrial sectors were represented by eight ministers. They were very powerful. But how come China could have reform? Because Deng Xiaoping used the degree of freedom to start some kind of changes. And success, success breeds success. Today, I think the same. The top leadership in China still have that degree of freedom. And they also wanted to do things, but they do things they need to, you know, depends on, in a contingent way, depends on the domestic situation and a global situation. And uh, the direction of the reform has been very clear because if you, look, if you read the 11th five-year plan, 12th five-year plan, you see all the direction of reform has been discussed. But the implementation of that reform depends on the global economy situation and the domestic economic situation. So I think that the answer, I do not really think that political capture, because them is at equilibrium, then you cannot change anything. And, uh, and, and, and that gives me the hope. China can do those kind of changes. Other countries, like in India, in the past, you often say that you have the Hindu equilibrium, and that has been the equilibrium for, for 3,000 years. But how come in the 1990s, you can start to have those kind of reforms? Because, because the political leader used like your freedom to introduce some critical policy changes and that kind of policy changes change the incentive structure. And uh, so with that, I have the conviction not only China can carry out the reform, African country, Latin American country can carry out the reform. And we cannot, you know, I don't think that we are the state of the political capture. We are the state of the equilibrium of political economy. Thanks very much, Justin. That message was, as I interpret it, can do. We like, can yeah. do. Yes. Um, which I, I think is a good message in this city, for example. The, the, uh, uh, the, uh, let me ask, I have the advantage of uh, not being an expert on the Chinese economy. So we're asking uh, simple questions, uh, hopefully, that will appeal to the audience. So one of the things that still remains a mystery that needs to be demystified uh, is uh, this uh, consumption rate in China. So 36% of GDP is consumption in China, the lowest as far as I know in the world, anyway, of any case that I'm familiar. And I'd like to uh, get the panel's 
sense of uh, why uh, the Chinese consumption rate is so low, and is it likely to change? Uh, I don't know if you want to start, Justin, or you I'll be happy because I analyze that in my book. Yeah. You know, the consumption as a percentage of GDP in the 1990s was about 60%. And as you observe now, dropped down to about 35, 36%. There are many hypotheses for that. One of the common hypotheses was because China did not have the social security system. And the household need to save for their retirement, for their health, for their children's education. And so the common recommendation in the media or the academic circle you can read here is that China need to do that kind of reform. And I agree, China need to do those kind of reform. But those kind of reform cannot change this kind of pattern. Because if China's if there's more you know social security system and if the government provide more you know housing or or, 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 or education or health Individual household may not to, may not have to save as much, but the government need to save more. So as a balance, I don't think it's going to change this kind of pattern. So we need really need to understand what are the roots of this kind of decline in the household consumption, and also increase in the saving rate in China. In effect, household saving in China high twenty percent as a percentage of GDP, but it's the same level as in India. What different, what different China, what, what distinguish China from other countries was corporate saving rate. In China, it's really high. It is another 20% or more. Of GDP. Yeah, the GDP. And how come the corporate saving rate in China is so high? It related to the dual track of China's reform. The government retains certain kind of protection to the old industrial sectors, large industrial sectors. And uh, the distortion, as you know, uh, Nick just mentioned, including the financial sectors. And uh, the government you know, have a, you know, over-concentration of financial resources in the banking sectors as a way to provide low interest rate to the corporate sectors as a way of protection and subsidies. And also in the resources sectors. The resources are owned by the state, but the levies on the resources is close to zero. And that's a way also to you know, subsidize the resources firm. And then some monopoly in the service sectors. Those are the, you know, the company in those kind of sectors. They enjoy extremely high corporate profit. And because they enjoy high corporate profit, so the corporate saving rate is so high. So I think that, uh, you know, to address the issue of lower consumption as a percentage of GDP, we need to carry out further reform to remove those kind of distortion. And I think that is the way to change the picture. Good. Uh, any, do, do you guys want to add, uh, Nick or Victor? Well, I'll just this? add a couple of things. Um, I think I by and large agree uh, with what Justin said. Um, I would argue that, you know, from roughly the middle part of the last decade, financial repression actually increased in China. Uh, interest rates went down. Uh, household income was depressed as a result of that. Households started to save more. That further depressed consumption. 
lending rates uh, came down dramatically in real terms uh, uh, as well, and most of the borrowing is being done at that time by the corporate sector, and that contributes to the uh, high profitability in the corporate sector, and the tax system didn't capture very much of that. I think I might disagree a little bit about the social safety net because uh, obviously the government will have to spend more to provide the services uh, and if the individuals might save less, but uh, it depends a lot on how that's financed. And if you took more profits, uh, if, if high-profit corporate sectors were required to pay dividends to the state, at a much higher level, uh, low-income households uh, might be big net beneficiaries. Uh, High-income households might not be. And I think, so I, I think there is some leverage on uh, in improving the social safety net in terms of uh, rebalancing the economy. Also, I would mention the exchange rate became increasingly undervalued uh, after 2003, and that contributed to a big increase also in corporate profits up in the manufacturing sector. And that's where the profits uh, and the high savings has been generated. So it's not just low raw material prices or low royalty payments on natural resources, but it's also the exchange rate, the underpricing of capital, all of which serve to uh, increase the returns to capital uh, and the labor <laughs> share of uh, income went down. So all those things need to be addressed uh, to get back on track. Can I respond to this? Sure. I, I, I agree to some extent, you know, if you have that's a much better social provision and so on, the government needs to spend more, the government also needs to save more. So I think that effect on the consumption as a percent of GDP, I would say very small. Because you can look into Singaporean situation. Singapore also have, Singapore has one of the best social safety net. But the saving rate in Singapore is also one of the highest in the world. Okay, and then regarding the exchange rate issue, I think it's you know depends on what kind of model you're using. When you say that China undervalue exchange rate in general, I think it use Balasa Samuelson theorem as a reference because the tradable sector in China expands so fast, productivity increase so much, and if you use the Balasa Samuelson theorem as a reference then you can say China undervalue its real exchange rate. However, Barasa Samuelton during assume that you have a unified national labor markets. But China is still a dual economy with a lot of you know, surplus labor in the traditional sectors. In this process, we can build a model to show the Barasa Samuelton did not work. And, uh, and in this process, even the productivity increased very rapidly, expand very rapidly in the tradable sectors. It's a way to absorb the surplus labor from the traditional sectors to the modern sectors. And in this process, wage rate will not increase much. And if the government, you know, so those kind of exchange rate, if you based on the revised Balasa Samuel theorem, the exchange rate in China was very close to equilibrium. And if the Chinese government artificially appreciate the nominal exchange rate, it will slow down the absorption of the surplus labor from the rural areas to the modern sectors. And as a result, the income of the surplus labor will be replaced, and the consumption will be further be replaced. So at least from this point of view, I don't think that can contribute to, you know, if you change the exchange rate, in effect, it will reduce consumption instead of increase consumption. 
Okay, Vikram, your turn so long as you don't speak about the Balasa Samuelson effect. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just make three quick points. Right. First, it's important to know that consumption growth yeah. has been very high. Right. In fact, one of the highest in the world, even though the share of GDP is low because the share of consumption in GDP is low, <coughs> GDP growth is so high that the consumption growth rate has been very high. Secondly, the share of labor, the share of wages and national income has declined. And the share of wages and national income has declined in large part, in my view, because of structural change in the economy, away from agriculture, where the share of wages tends to be high, towards manufacturing, where the share of wages <coughs> tends to be low, and the share of capital tends to be high. So even if nothing else happened, even if there were no distortions with the financial system, you would expect that the share of cons household consumption in GDP would decline, simply because the share of wages had declined. Um, and lastly, I just want to emphasize Justin's last point. I find it very frustrating when I, when I listen to or read uh, stuff in the press here about how important it is for China to raise consumption, to raise the consumption share. And this has led to many policy interventions in China which, you know, to, to subsidize cars and to subsidize refrigerators and, and white goods and so forth. I think the right emphasis is to attack the distortions in the economy. The decision whether to save or to invest is up to individuals, households, and corporations. The important point is that there shouldn't be policy distortions that move them in one direction or the other. And I agree with Justin. It's very interesting. If you look at the share of savings in Korea and in Japan, even after the introduction of uh, uh, several social benefit schemes, even after the removal of many distortions, the share of savings remain relatively high. They're now beginning to come down in, in Korea. They came down uh, earlier in Japan, but they remain rather high for a significant amount of time, which suggests that if you believe in the precautionary uh, 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 um, uh, the desire to save, that that precautionary sense remains for a long time because people still don't believe that the government is going to continue to provide the social benefits uh, as, as, as people grow old. Perhaps that's the reason. At some point, I want to come back to the panel uh, to uh, ask a question about inequality in China, because inequality is a very, very important issue in the United States at the moment. And uh, I'd like to get a sense of uh, uh, what's happening, which I know inequality has been widening in China and how that, uh, that is playing out, uh, and how that will play out. But rather than go to that directly, I will come back to that. Um, I'd like to ask uh, the audience if they have any, any questions or comments. If you do, uh, please uh, uh, begin by introducing yourself and try and keep it short, because we don't have actually a lot of time. We've only got about another half hour or so. Uh, so I'm going to start here at the, at the front row, yeah. We're going to take two or three because there's a lot of hands up, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> hello, I'm Bill Brown. I work for the government here, and I teach some at GW. Um, you made a, a pretty interesting comment at the beginning about sort of uh, pushing back on the Washington consensus, saying that China's model is sort of better, I guess, is what you said. Um, what I'm, what I'm interested in your, in your analysis is if you look at East Asia, uh, there's another country there that I would argue has done an even better job than China. Uh, I would say a far better job than China, and that's South Korea over the same period. Um, especially your last comment that something like China is still 20 years behind Korea. Well, 1960, I think 
South Korea was probably behind China. So um, South Korea has done a remarkably good job also in East Asia, I think with probably much less distortions, certainly far less inequality than China. Of course, it's a much smaller country. But it's followed a much more Washington-oriented, uh, maybe not exactly opening up, but it certainly opened up its own capital markets to its own people so that savings were rewarded very strongly in South Korea in a way that even today savings are not rewarded in China. So I'm wondering how, how are you looking at this Washington consensus? It, to me, that's your strongest statement, the most provocative statement that you've made here. And I'd be interested in, in your analysis of other countries like South Korea. Uh, yes, the gentleman uh, from the IMF, yeah. I'm Charan Singh. I work at the IMF now, but I've worked for nearly three decades in India, watching China from the Indian borders. A simple question, seeking some demystification here. What could be the reasons for China holding such high reserves? And does China think that holding such high reserves could be a cause of concern for the international monetary system? Thank you. Uh, the lady there, uh, the lady there, yeah. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Ling. Uh, my name is Lu Sun. I'm a student from uh, Johns Hopkins School of International Studies. And I'm actually very lucky. I sit in one of your classes, Zhongguo Jinzi Zhuanti, when I was back in Peking University. So actually, I went through your lectures, which <laughs> is uh, like sort of like the main content of, of this book. Uh, my question is mainly about um, interest rate liberalization in China, which is um, explicitly outlined in the 12th five-year plan. And uh, uh, I'm very interested in your, in your opinion about the timing of the complete uh, interest uh, liberalization uh, in China. And uh, do you think uh, right now that uh, the, the uh, necessary institutions, uh, legal framework, uh, uh, supervisory framework, as well as banking management is sufficient to conduct a complete, gradual but complete um, interest liberalization? Uh, if not, uh, um, why and also, like, what do you think will be the best sequence and other preconditions for, for such a um, liberalization? Thank you. Okay, so we'll come back uh, to you then, uh, Justin, and perhaps Nick and uh, Vikram, if you want to chip in. Yes, go ahead, please. Uh, I think the, regarding the first one, the experience of Korea, we know that Korea did not follow the Washington Consensus because the Korea have a very proactive government interventions in its development process. So in a way, Korea followed more of the structuralism proposed by Latin America countries. And the Washington consensus was a reaction to the structuralism, right? So I think your description of Korea following the Washington consensus was not a fact. And uh, Korea did not carry out as much intervention as Latin America country. You know, in my Marshall lecture, I tried to understand that, 2007. It was because if you wanted to have those kind of structuralist intervention, you need to subsidize the sectors heavily. And the Korean and other East Asian economies, their resources poor economies. In general, unless you are very resources-rich economy or you are large economies, otherwise it's very hard for the government 
to mobilize a lot of resources to protect the priority sectors. And, 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 and so that's the reason why, although in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, other East Asian economies were influenced by the structuralism, those kind of interventionalist, those kind of attempt to building the commanding height, but because their government did not have the resources to subsidize the target sectors heavily. And so without much subsidies, the sector developed will, would have to be more consistent with their competitive advantages. So that's my response to your question. The second one regarding this high reserve in China, we need to understand. The large reserve in China was affected only after 2005. And globally, the reserve in the developing countries started to expand in 2001. Because in 2001, the global reserve was only one trillion. And by the time of 2007, the global reserve holding by non-reserve issuing country increased to about eight trillion. And so we need to understand how come globally the reserve owned by non-reserve issuing country increased from one trillion in 2001 to eight trillion in 2007. I think that will give you a much better insight. How come reserve in China increased so much from 2005 and 2008 to 2008. And then regarding the financial sectors, I think... Uh, oh, but wait, wait, wait. So what is... <laughs> so why? Why? Well, in China, we have a yeah. saying to say that uh, when the water rises, then the ship will rise with the waters. <laughs> okay. Right, this has nothing to do with liquidity creation <laughs> in the United States. All right, go ahead. Yeah. And then coming to the issue of the financial sector reform, I think the most important reform in China is to change the over-concentration of financial structure in the banking sectors by the four largest state banks as well as the equity market. China should develop more small, medium-sized local banks. They can provide the liquidities, the services, to small and medium-sized firms in manufacturing sectors, service sectors, and agriculture. And the liberalizing the interest rate will not help much. Because if you liberalize the interest rate, certainly those large corporations need to pay more to the banking sectors. And then that will allow the banking sector to have a much larger profit. And it will not help much. So I think more important is for the financial sector reform is to change the financial structure. And in fact, I discuss a lot in the book. And Vikram, yeah, go ahead. I'd just like to come in on this uh, last question on the financial structure. I, I have a little bit different view. I think that interest rate liberalization, gradual interest rate liberalization, is actually quite important. Uh, I think deposit rates would rise. That would help to support uh, private consumption expenditure. Lending rates would go up. I mean, one of the themes of the closing chapter is the overinvestment in China, and I think it's in part because real, in, real lending rates have been quite low uh, in the last, uh, you know, since roughly the middle of the last uh, decade, which has resulted in the investment share of GDP going to uh, almost 50 percent, uh, extraordinarily high. So capital, <laughs> capital is too cheap. 
Uh, and if you want to have a more diversified financial sector, I think it's also important to have interest rate liberalization. Um, Wen Jiabao made this criticism of the banks a few weeks ago and said that they need to be broken up. But I think what they really need is more competition, and the reason you don't have too much competition in the banking sector is that we have price controls. That is, the interest rates are fixed by the central bank. In particular, there's a ceiling on deposit rates and a floor on lending rates, and that means it's, very, it's difficult to erode the incumbent position of the large banks that have massive uh, deposit-raising uh, capability. There has been some erosion, however. If you look at the big four banks, the so-called state-owned banks are now so-called uh, commercial banks, uh, if you go back in the late 1990s, they had about 75% of the banking business, about 75% of assets. Today, they're down to around between 40 and 45%. So their, their share has been cut in half, and there have been uh, uh, many, many new financial institutions and banks, community banks, local banks, rural banks. I mean, the Chinese now say there are more, I can't remember the number, 3,800 different banks in China. Many of them, of course, are quite small. But I think if you want to have... Uh, a change in the structure that it is important to have more flexible interest rate structure so there can be more competition so the more successful banks will be able to expand and uh, the, maybe some of the incumbent banks would have their position eroded. Um, and I don't think interest rate liberalization implies that bank profitability would go up. You have more competition if you have liberalization, bank profits would come down. But here that, you know, unless you break the monopoly, Otherwise, you liberalize the prices will allow them to have an even higher monopoly rent. Well, they so, have, so they have the flexibility to go up on the lending rates now. I don't think there is a monopoly. And then, if that is really implemented, that means already you liberalize the interest rate already. No, right? but the because deposit can, rate has a ceiling, and the spread is fixed. Yeah. So it's anti-competitive. But you know, because if you go to Wenzhou and to study those kind of local small banks, even. Under current situation, they are so profitable already. So it's the the main trouble in China is the entry. The entry is controlled, and if entry is removed, the entry control is removed, then the competition comes, and the interest rate, you know, certainly will need to be fluctuated. But currently, you know, it's allowed to increase the interest rate, but it's not. You are right; it's not allowed to raise the deposit rate. Okay, I'm, I'm tempted to comment that no economic system has been created where banks are now creating trouble. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Vika. No, I, I, actually I have some strong views on this, but I, I've, it's been discussed enough, so I think perhaps we should move on. All right. Uh, yes, the gentleman there in the middle, and then we'll go to uh, the gentleman there at the back. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, thank yeah. you. Uh, Dong Huiyu with China Review News Agency. My question is for Professor Lin. Uh, recently, the World Bank's report caused a lot of debates in China. And do you think the World Bank's recommendation for Chinese economic reform in the next 30 years are good for Chinese economic substantial growth and social stability? How would you evaluate the momentum of economic reform right now in China, what should be the priorities of the further economic reform in the near term and the mid, uh, middle term? Thank you. 
Well, that should be an easy question to answer. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Right at the back, the gentleman, yeah. Clem Miller, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors. You alluded briefly to equity market reform. I'm wondering if you could expand on that. You know, sort of beyond the banks, uh, equity markets, bond markets, currency markets, what kind of reforms are needed there? Okay, we'll take one more. Uh, the lady here, yeah. Um, Yan Ying Chen with Hong Kong Phoenix TV. Um, given the uh, security and strategy and the uh, economic dialogue will be held on May 3rd, I want to know that uh, according to U.S. and the China Business Council, there are lots of foreign investors. They hope the uh, Secretary Gardner could help raise some issue about to improve the climate uh, for the foreign investors uh, in China. So I want to know that will the experts foresee that any issue will be put on the table in this dialogue? All right. Okay. Uh, go on. Just. Yeah, about the China 2030s, Vikram can be a better person to answer because he is the task team leaders of the report. And for me, I think a lot of the recommendation in the China 2030s have been discussed in China. And I think the most important value is that this report put all those recommendations in a consistent framework. And as I re in a referred to earlier, in China, about the direction of reform and the area of the reform, basically people have some ideas. But how to implement that depends on domestic economic situation and global economic situation. When you have a global crisis, then it's harder to push domestic reform because, in general, those reform areas may reduce the job opportunity or something like that, and the government certainly will be reductant. And then you see some kind of very dynamic growth in the economy. Otherwise, you will not implement any reform which has some kind of contractionary implications, right? And regarding the financial sector reform, China is a developing country. So certainly China will not have the similar financial structure as in high-income countries. And from what I see, the most important reform you know, in my book and in other writing, it's most important of the entry of small and local financial institutions, and especially small local banks. Because those are, those are the financial institutions that could provide financial services to the agricultural households, to the small and medium-sized enterprises in manufacturing sectors and in service sectors. And uh, still, today, they employ more than 60%, 70% of labor force in China. But because of over-concentration of financial you know, structure, they did not get the financial services. So those are the areas, from my own understanding, should be the priorities. And the bond market and so on, certainly we need to try, but that should not be the main focus or the financial sector reform at this stage. And, and the third one, I did not follow you know, day to day about what will be on the table of the dialogue and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, did you want to add something, Vikram? Yeah. Well, let me just uh, say uh, one, make one point about China 2030. Uh, and that is that uh, you know, during the discussions of this report, we discussed a huge range of areas, but there was just one common underlying theme. 
And that theme is that there has to be a change in the role of government in China, not a change in the size, not an increase or a decrease in the size of government, but a change in the role of government. In certain areas, the government needs to step back and be an indirect influencer of economic decisions through uh, rules, regulations, laws, without being a direct participant in the market. But in other areas, the government has to be much more proactive in areas of delivery of public services to improve the environment, to ensure that there is social security. And there we feel the government really has room to increase its activities in the economy. And this requires a shift in direction, not a change in the size or a retreat from the economy necessarily. Right. Yes, the lady here. Hi, my name is Lynn Jones. I work for the U.S. International Trade Commission, but it has nothing to do with the U.S. government. Um, so I just want to ask you a question that I have not been touched upon during today's discussion. is about China's demographic change. So China is going through a rapid dem demographic change during... And, and it, there's a saying says that China probably, um, before China getting rich, China is getting older. So uh, I just wonder, uh, you know, um, you project that China will uh, continue growth at 8% for the next 20 years. Um, have you taken into the consideration of the demographic change in the Chinese? And how, uh, what kind of impact do you anticipate on the China's economic growth? Thank you. Good. Okay. Well, that'll. Uh, if if there's any other question, because that's uh, then I'm going to close it to questions, uh, because we're coming due. Yes, uh, the gentleman there, and then the lady. Yes. Uh, thank yeah. you, uh, Jack Zeng, Eurasia Group. You need oh, uh, a mic. Uh, thanks again, uh, Jack Zeng, Eurasia Group. Um, my. My question is about the global context of, uh, of development. So you referenced uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan in their development, but it seems to me that they, uh, they developed during a time when globalization was at a, uh, a lower point, uh, had less impact on, on development than China has, and they relied a lot more on indigenous innovation. Uh, will that be the case uh, for China, and ch can China develop those uh, capacities to do indigenous innovation uh, in order to sustain growth. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yes, I'm Martha Holdridge, a uh, resident in, uh, in, Ch in China uh, in the 70s, early 70s. Uh, I would like to ask whether you have done any environmental accounting and whether, if you have, you find that that could deter the rate of growth because there's a lot of repair to be done. Okay, Justin, yeah. Okay, the first one about the aging in China, and it's an issue has been discussed quite extensively in China. And <clears throat> I think the aging, you know, whether it's going to reduce the growth rate, the growth potential, I, you know, predict. I think not. For several reasons. The first one, the retirement age in China today is extremely young. And for the female, they retire at 55 or earlier. For the male, they retire at 60 or earlier. 
And if aging is an issue, it's possible to extend the retirement age, right? And to offset the reduction in the labor force. That's one thing. And secondly, it's foreseeable. So China can also modify the family planning policies, allow you know, some family to have two children instead of one. And in fact, China already modified some of that. So that can you know, also cope the reduction in the labor force in 15, 20 years from now. And the third one, more important, that you can have the, you know, the, 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 the substitution between quantity and qualities. So if you see that the labor supply is going to be reduced in the future, you can increase the investment in education. And you know that China expand the education investment very aggressively in the past few years, and they will continue to do that in the coming years. So if you take all those you know, adjustments, I think that the aging will not be uh, in a barrier for China to continue the dynamic economic growth. The second one is that <clears throat> in a, the environment for the growth of Japan, Korea, and Taiwan I think that as long as an economy can provide the goods at a competitive cost, the market will always be there. Even if you have a slowdown in the global economy, that means the consumer in an income country or other country, they would love to have cheaper goods. So as long as you can provide goods at a competitive cost, you always have the market. And the question is that whether China can do that or not. And my recommendation is that if you follow your competitive advantages, and, and tap into the potential advantage back awareness, you will be able to produce at a lower cost compared to others. So, you know, I think that, you know, if you have a dynamic growing global economy, it's fine. But even in a global economy, it's slowing down. As long as you can follow your competitive advantages, you can, you know, grow, continue to grow. And uh, regarding your statement that Japan, Korea, in Taiwan, they did much more indigenous growth. That was only after you know, they reached the high income status. In the early stages, in effect, they imported a lot of technology. They licensed the technology. Japan was famous for licensing technology, right? And only when they reached high income status, their technologies, their industries, were on the global technological frontiers. Then they started to increase much more in the R&D, in the indigenous growth. And currently, for China, most industries still locate within the global technology frontier. China still has the potential to benefit from the advantage of big ones. Certainly, certain industries in China may already hit the global technology frontier. For that, if China wanted to maintain competitiveness in those kind of sectors, China need to increase its R&D in those kind of sectors. And also, even a country wanted to wants to benefit from the advantage backwardness by you know importation of technology, you also need to do some kind of process innovation. And you can see you know China and other East Asian economy, they also engage a lot of in the process innovation. So I think that uh, you know I'm still confident that the possibility for China to upgrade the industry, to diversify industry is still huge. And those kind of upgrading plus that China has high saving rate allow China to maintain very dynamic growth in the coming decades.
The last one about the environmental issue. Well, you know, China is an economy. It's an economy with continental size. So most people say, well, environment, climate changes are externalities. But in China, all those kind of things need to be internalized. Because of that, Chinese government is very serious about the climate changes, about the environmental you know, uh, improvement and so on. So if you, you know, talk to those people in a global discussion, they are very impressed by the unilateral action that the Chinese government you know, have taken, has taken regarding the climate changes and the environment. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to uh, draw it to a close. And, uh, however, uh, uh, I'd like to ask the panel my question about inequality and then ask them to give any concluding remarks. So my question on inequality is, how serious a problem is inequality in China today? And uh, uh, is there uh, any comparison you want to draw to the United States one way or another in terms of... uh, uh, the seriousness of the problem, uh, and also uh, what, if anything, uh, can be done about it. That's my question. I also ask you at the same time uh, to make your uh, any concluding statement you have. So I'll start with the discussions, if I may. Uh, uh, Nick, do you want to do you want to go first? Well, um, let me say first of all, this is not an area I've worked on in any in any depth at all. And uh, second, my second comment would be, uh, I think the data on income inequality in China are not as good as we'd like them to be. I mean, the government doesn't. Well, we we have some Gini coefficients that have been published over the years in a lot of World Bank. Uh, publications, there's no official, occasionally government agencies put out a number, but I think there's some degree of uncertainty of exactly uh, what the level of inequality is. I think we know the stylized facts are that inequality declined very dramatically in the first seven or eight years of economic reform through the mid-80s, and it seems to have gotten steadily worse. My impression is that it is at least as bad as as the United States and possibly (coughs) worse, but maybe Vikram has a better uh, fix on that. Uh, And there are lots of problems. They have a tax system that relies entirely on indirect taxes. Uh, The total take of the personal income tax is now less than 1% of GDP. So uh, the the taxing higher income people, you know, having a differential income tax that might be redistributed is certainly not a policy option given the current structure of the tax system. There is, I think, an increasing degree of uh, redistribution in some expenditure policies. Uh, The building out of the social safety net, I certainly think, is benefiting more people at lower income and then at higher incomes. Uh, So I I don't really have any recommendations on policy other than the rebalancing that we talked about earlier would help. I think faster growth of of wages would help. Uh, Faster growth of, of the modern sector labor force, getting more people out of agriculture into the modern sector. Uh, would help the measures of uh, income inequality that we look at. Um, On inequality, I think uh, all the evidence, and it's not just evidence on income inequality, but all the other evidence that we can get in house ownership and uh, access uh, to various services and so forth, all point to rising inequality. And in fact, if you look at income inequality, it 
appears to have paused, but not the other measures of inequality. So it's not clear whether this is just a pause or whether it's an inflection point as far as income inequality is concerned. Now, whenever I sort of mention income inequality in China, I always uh, use a phrase from my colleague Moises Naim in Carnegie. He says income inequality is like cholesterol. You have good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. You have good inequality and bad inequality. Inequality that comes about because of differences in talent, ability, hard work, clearly is the kind of inequality you want in order to maintain incentives uh, for productivity growth. Also, inequality that comes about as a result of structural change as people move from low-productivity agriculture to high-productivity industry, the Kuznetsian effect, so to speak, leads to an initial rising inequality before you ultimately get a decline in inequality. These are the sorts of inequalities that a country should... Could, should try not to disturb. However, having said that, a major contributing factor, in my view, to rising inequality in China is rising inequality of access to opportunities. Opportunities for health, opportunities for education, and opportunities for jobs, and opportunities to get finance. Now, these four areas are leading to a sort of a a bifurcation, if you wish, between those in urban areas who have access with high incomes, have access to social services, good education, high-quality education, who, and, and large firms which have access to finance, and people who are connected who have access to jobs. The big inequality difference in China, unlike any other part of East Asia, incidentally, is rural-urban inequality. It is not intra-rural or intra-urban inequality. And increasingly, incidentally, the interior regions of China are now growing faster than the coastal regions in recent years. So some of the inter-regional inequality is beginning to decline, but rural-urban inequality continues to be high and continues to increase. So the implications for government policy, in my view, are abundantly clear, that there must be increasing expenditure on providing services for health, education, and social protection in rural areas and for migrant workers in urban areas who don't have access to such, to such uh, services. It's a very clear result. The question in the minds of the government is, how much? How much do you finance? Because the government does not want to fall into the trap of high-income countries where you have an entitlement society which becomes fiscally unsustainable. So they want to provide a set of services which they can sustain over a long period of time, even during difficult times. And therefore, they want to be careful. And I, I think that that caution is well warranted. Thank you. That's another way in which developing countries learn from advanced countries. They learn to avoid their mistakes. <laughs> um, uh, Justin, yeah. Uh, to me, inequality is the most serious issue in China. And I made that clear in my books. And I also talk about that in many occasions. And I agree with Wiklan, the you know, inequality in the access to opportunities is serious. And for that, the government needs to improve the provision and so on, that the public goods areas. But also in income inequalities, in China it's also very high. And according to the Gini coefficient, it's close to the Latin American situation. And Nick mentioned that in the East Asian economies, like in Korea, Taiwan, Japan, during the rapid growing period of time, they achieved high growth and uh, equities. And how come that 
of China followed the East Asian models after the reform. China achieved high growth, but the income disparity continued to widen. I think that related to the dual track approach that China adopted. As I mentioned, China continued to provide certain kind of subsidy and protection to the priority sectors through the financial deflation, through the law levy to the resources, and also some monopolies. And in the financial sector, you know, only large corporations owned by state or by rich people, they have get financial services. And because of financial repression, in effect, they were subsidized. And who subsidized them? Well, people put the money into the banking sectors, they receive low interest rate. And those people are relatively poor. And so, in effect, you were asking poor people to subsidize the large corporation owned by the rich people, what a state. And so that's one of the source. Secondly, in the natural resources. In the past, law levy was designed to support the state-owned mining firms. But after 1983, 84, the private sectors can also enter into the mining. And after the 1990s, the prices of mining has been liberalized. But the levy did not increase. So those people who can get access to mining, they immediately become billionaires. So that's another source of income inequality. Then, sir, certainly, if you have monopoly, you have monopoly rent. And then those companies, they pay extremely high salary to their workers. Another source of income inequalities. So from what I see, if China wanted to achieve similar result of dynamic economic growth with equity. The way is to complete the reform. The transition from a planned economy to a market economy by removing the remaining uh, distortions. And I think uh, if China can do that, not only China can improve the income distribution, China can also continue to tap into the potential of 8% growth rate continuously for another 20 years. Okay, thank you very much. I think in this session we had a glimpse of the extraordinary complexity of this Chinese economy of 1.3 billion people, about four times uh, the population of the United States, undergoing a transformation among the most rapid in history. By understanding it better, uh, I think, and understanding some of the issues that policymakers are confronting there, the, the enormously complex issues. I think we also have a better chance of, uh, 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 of, uh, of a better chance to uh, manage this uh, transition uh, uh, of this enormous economy that is bursting onto the scene in a way that hopefully uh, minimizes international frictions. It's very, very important for us to understand uh, uh, the internal workings of, uh, of China for, for that reason, if for no other. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, this session has, I think, covered that very well, and we're enormously grateful to uh, Justin Lin, who has brought his extraordinary experience and his wisdom and his balance. 
to, uh, uh, to demystify uh, the Chinese economy for us. It's also our opportunity to uh, bid farewell to him uh, and uh, uh, to say that uh, uh, this, this door will always be open to you. And uh, you're still a young man, at least, <laughs> at least you look like a young man. <laughs> and, uh, and so I hope there'll be many more uh, opportunities. And uh, uh, Nick, again, thank you very much for joining us again in a Carnegie event. And I'm not going to thank Vikram because, you know, he's paid to do this here. <laughs> but uh, thank you. <laughs> thank- Southeast Asian Yeah, no, that's true. Thank you very much all for coming. Thank you. Thank you.